This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. When you decided to attend architecture school, did you know what you were signing up for? What are the pros and cons? What do the courses look like? How does a degree path vary from one institution to another? Without the luxury of a crystal ball, even if you knew the answer to those questions, would it mean anything to you? Welcome to episode 138, the second part of our discussion where we explore the topic, is architecture school broken? Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Construction Specialties, maker of architectural building products designed to master the movement of buildings, people, and natural elements. Visit masteringmovement.net to learn more. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to continue on with the topic we started in the previous episode, discussing whether or not architecture school may, in fact, be broken. We didn't intend for this to be a two-part episode when we originally started blocking things out, but we got an hour into the last episode and we realized we were only halfway through all our talking points, so we decided to pivot yeah, and make it a (laughs) two-parter. And like how all things happen, life comes at you in funny ways, and so I am... I mean, I might only be like halfway through whatever kind of cold or something that I've got. So if I sound extra smooth and bassy today, it's not audio editing. It's all natural. (laughs) Yeah, uh, something like that. Something like that. Okay, so in the last episode, for the people that are starting on this one, even though you should start on number one, but we covered history of architectural education, the concerns and criticisms of the current system and criticisms of the studio-based learning method. I mean, there were a lot of talking points for each one of those. And where we had decided, okay, let's stop and to continue this conversation on, really, like the moment had to do with the divide between practice and academia, which is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of where we left off. Yeah. yeah, and that's a big one. So let's pick up where we left off last time, which was the divide between practice and academia. And this has been kind of interesting. This probably could be its own topic for an entire show, to be honest with you, because as someone who hires somebody, which is both you and me, and we're trying to evaluate talent and how workplace ready are they, all that kind of stuff. Knowledge, right? About the profession and architecture. Yeah. All of that. Now that you're more firmly entrenched or knowledgeable about the academic side of what do we got to do to actually prepare our students to be good architects? which there may be some misalignments between what it takes to make a good architect and one that what do you have to do to create a good employee in the workforce to do architecture? Sure. Those aren't the same thing for sure. That's a different set of outcomes, really. I mean, there's a little bit of overlap, but yeah, those aren't the same thing, creating a good employee versus a good architect. Right. It it really has to do with is your measurement criteria, like how good do you know Revit versus how good are you at thinking through critical problems where we're not trying to recreate the same solution over and over again. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of what it is. So just like in the last episode, we have three big blocks of stuff to talk about, and each block is broken down into a series of subtopics. So underneath this one, we have quite a few, so let's just jump right into it and get into the, the theoretical versus the practical emphasis. And really, we kind of just launched into this conversation by pointing out that academia often places a strong emphasis on architectural theory and history and experimentation. 
we all know that's important. Like you got to build a foundation, literally what you're thinking about, how you think about it, all that kind of good stuff. But then there's some argument that professionals in the field will make and saying, well, those things are great, but they don't actually prepare the students to deal with real world problems and situations. Like there's not enough time spent on professional practice. There's not a budget constraints, building codes, running an office, understanding real estate, all the kind of things that we deal with once you actually get a real job and go to work. Yeah. We've talked about it before on pie in the sky stuff, my base on the moon right. project and those kind of things. Again, there is a value to that stuff that it's sort of stretching your mind and, and making you think critically about things that aren't necessarily status quo, which is good for us to do just in general as architects, right? Like we want to be able to do those kind of things. On the flip side of that, I think it comes down to being in a spot where it's like there's no rules. And so the number of students that come to me after they graduate or after they've worked for a semester and go, man, work is 100% different than this. Wow. And it shouldn't be 100%. The way that I feel about it is it shouldn't be 100%. I mean, it shouldn't be 0% either, but it shouldn't be 100%. It should be somewhere in the middle and there's a, there's a little bit of overlap. Students are getting exposed and actually having to work through some of the things that we as architects deal with every day. All those things you listed off earlier about the realities of the stuff that we do, having zero knowledge of that, in a way, to me, is a disservice to the students. Well, okay, so out of all the bullet points we have here, the difference between what type of architecture student are you making versus what type does the industry want is the thing that's of most interest to me. Because when I went into school, really, becoming an architect had to do with designing buildings. I mean, things are different now. I couldn't even tell you the names of five architects when I started my first day in architecture school. I mean, there was no internet. There was no... That information just wasn't just in your face. The library in the bookstore. That was it. So you would end up going into school and, you know, like the idea of what an architect does versus what one actually does when I look at what my office looks like now is wildly different, wildly different. And I would also suggest that we try to create more designers than we need in that process. Yeah. We're back to kind of one of the criticisms from our last one, right? That the educational system is so design focused, but not everybody's going to be a designer. No, it's not. So let's go to another bullet point here, studio culture, you know, and we have in here that the studio-based learning model in academia can foster an intense and insular environment. Really, and the idea behind that is like you as the professor give everybody in the class an assignment and they go sit at their desks and or in their apartments or wherever they may be and they come up with a solution and then you visit their desk and you critique it and you review it and they present it. And that's not really how the design process works in the real world either. And what's interesting about that one for me is I'm on both sides of this because when I've gone to like career fairs, say at the University of Arkansas, they do most of the portfolios you look at on that day contain the same projects. Yeah. And so you get a pretty good understanding of how everybody did relative to one another because you're evaluating the same project across a a broad range of students which is not the same thing as doing team projects. The issue with team projects is, right, then it's hard to evaluate who actually did what when you're evaluating the work. Mm -hmm. And now that we're getting classrooms to have more and more students and fewer and fewer professors overseeing the work of those more and more students, you're getting more of those kind of team projects. Yeah. But those projects, the way they're structured, they don't like set up and say, hey, in this one, you're all going to be a different stakeholder. 
you're going to be a client, you're going to be a developer, and you're going to be a designer, and you're going to be the technical lead. And everybody has a role to play, and you have to collaborate as opposed to everybody tries to draw straws and divide up the work. And we all know what happens. Like two people end up doing the vast majority of everything, and the other two people kind of ride their coattails and then feel like, well, they didn't even get the opportunity to do the work because the other two people were so bossy. I mean, that's, that's kind of how that works. Yeah. I find it just gets divided up about, you take this part of the project, you take this part of the project, you take this part of the project, and it gets put together in pieces or in different spots. And so there's no actual coordination or collaboration. It's just like, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, and they all work separately, even though it's a group project. Some of the ones where we have, it's like, well, oh, you take care of the structure and you take care of the environmental systems and I'll deal with the design of stuff and the floor plans and whatever. And it's just like, you guys aren't learning the stuff you're supposed to learn in that process. Everybody's supposed to be learning about everything and how it works. And it doesn't always work that way. But you are right that the more and more students and the less and less professors to teach them, it gets to be difficult to be able to manage the studio environment with a growing number of students. Yeah. Well, you know, the process is so laborious. And I know that things are a little bit different now and, and we see it in real life. You know, the expectation of starting with a white piece of paper and having something that you can hold up and say, here it is. The amount of time to get to that point is getting shorter and shorter every single day. Yeah. And when you're in school, you're facing the same issues. How do you end up running students through that process, especially if you've got a lot of students? I think a lot of times you're forced to put them on team projects just in order to cover your ground a little bit more effectively. But you also have the challenge of, you can't cover that much ground no matter what, because the time for you to think through a problem and then to execute the problem are wildly different. Yeah. I mean, we used to say it took 10% of our time to actually think of that solution and 90% of the time to actually draw it. And so I'd say nine, nine out of every 10 hours I was up at the studio, I was building models or doing drawing. I mean, it wasn't hard. I mean, I could listen to headphones. I could listen mm -hmm. to people telling me stories in my ears. It was not high concentration work. It was just labor at that point. And that's still going on. Yeah, I think it's a little bit, I don't know that it's 90-10 anymore, but it's definitely not 50-50 for sure. The other thing about it too is I think it's a difference of when we get older or when we have more experience, I should say, maybe not get older, but we have more experience, that time that it takes us to come up with the idea that's well thought through and can be executed is smaller, I think, as students. I think that's the difference that it takes more time for them to come up with a possible solution that can be executed. So then they can do the stuff, just the production kind of work. Yeah. And I battle, I battle in my mind. I mean, and it's not a battle that I would ever win, but if computers have made this better or worse, quite honestly, that time it takes you to critically come up with something or develop an idea because, I mean, I can't count the number of times where I've had students go, Man, it took me eight hours to model it. I can't change that now. Yeah. Like, it took me, you know, the computer model. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't think about it before you did it. You just started doing it. It's not right, and you should have done this or that, or thought about it from a different way. And so it's it's a weird, I don't know. There's a weird thing about that whole thing that's still, I mean, it's still unbalanced. I'm just not sure how exactly. Well, you know, this is this could easily spiral into a different conversation, and it really has to do with how litigious our world is. So the level of documentation that's put upon us mm, yeah. has skyrocketed. I, I remember it wasn't even that long ago. Oh, yeah. Probably in the, I don't know, let's say 20 years. Nice round number. I was working for an interiors firm at the time. And we were renovating a hotel. And this was probably, I don't know, 25 stories. Probably, it was a weird shape project. It probably had 30 rooms per floor. 
and probably 20 stories to it. So not a ton of rooms, mm -hmm. not a lot. Yeah. But that entire architectural set, the entire set was 16 pages. <laughs> 24 by 36, too. There's no chance. Yeah. No. We have projects right now that the DD set has 700 pages in it. Yeah, exactly. And you go, are we over-documenting it? Yeah, and then in, whenever we have that conversation internally within the office from our QAQC group, they look at it and everything's reactionary. We draw stuff now because it was an issue somewhere else. Mm. I don't want to have this be an issue or this be an RFI or the owner get charged for something like this. So let's let's articulate this. Let's draw this. Let's clarify this point now, not later. And it's still not enough. Yeah. That also comes from, again, we don't need to get down this giant rabbit hole, but some of that comes from the construction side too, because that whole process is so much different than it used to be. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to what we're talking about here. Let's move on to the third topic we have under the divide between practice and academia, and that is limited exposure to real projects. Yeah. So I've said this before, and I still stand behind it to a certain extent, and we've actually talked about it. And like the type of questions that we ask at the end of these podcasts sometimes is to force you to answer a question that you don't have any preconceived notions over. So when you talk about limited exposure to real projects, it's because you're getting those portable habitat pods on the dark side of the moon. Like you get weird projects like that because they don't want you to think of something that you've already done or that you've seen before. So they're trying to get you to think outside of what's normal. But that's the reason why they do it. Yeah. But at the same time, guess what? There's not the same type of project constraints for the dark side of the moon in a real world application. Like, what's my budget <laughs> for, for something like that? Yeah. How many, yeah. what's my material supply chain going to look like? Yeah. How am I going to get it there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of considerations that go into a project like that, that are really thrown out the window because they're not the point of that exercise. So when do you get projects where that is the point? And it seems like, I mean, I've sat in a lot of different reviews and normally it seems like the only time you get real projects is when somebody's decided to take on like a design competition. And so there was a program mm -hmm. that someone came up with, like a conceptual program. You know, in our program, it takes place a little bit later in the curriculum. I mean, it definitely happens in the master's program, but I think that's an important thing to think about. It's like, when do you get exposed to it? For me, I guess, ideally, if I was going to make up my own curriculum, it would be every other semester would be real. Every other semester would be bananas, the pie in the sky stuff, so that there was always this back and forth of being able to work through those situations because they both give you different skills and different knowledge about the profession. We know there's an easy argument to be made for why you would have some of both. There's no real argument for why you should have one over the other. Does that make sense? Yeah. It shouldn't be all one or it shouldn't be all the other. Yeah. I, I can easily make that argument. And I don't know if there's like a drip valve that changes. Like in the beginning, there are no requirements. There's no restraints. It's just unfettered, whatever your brain can cook together. Yeah. And then as you move along, the drip turns up and you start to say, okay, well, here's an actual site and here are the restrictions. And then I wonder if you start getting more and more of this because you've already started to work through the process of, I don't know, identifying the parameters that actually, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. I think it doesn't limit your creativity. I think it forces you to be more creative, to be honest with you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? The limitations, I have some conversations like this with my professor colleagues, and the limitations are actually what force you to be creative. Almost anybody can be creative with no limitations. Mm -hmm. That's almost easier in a way. Sure. I mean, in my mind, if we want to make better architects and they want to, we want to make better architecture and build a better world, we got to do that with some constraints. 
they can't just be all pie in the sky stuff with no constraints at all. Like it's almost in my mind. I mean, I know it doesn't really work that way, but like constrain the bejesus out of them. Where they really got to get creative because there's so many rules and so many regulations and so many things that they've got to deal with. That how do they even become creative? You know, there's that. It's probably on Food Network. You know where. There's some cooking competition and everybody gets a mystery basket and you have to make like a meal out of oh, yeah, yeah. three ridiculous items. And then like the twist is halfway through, they make everybody rotate one station or something. You're like, oh God, I got to pick up where this person left off and I don't know what they were doing. Yeah. Seems like architecture projects yeah. should do that every now and then. Yeah. That'd be kind of fun, right? Like you have to go in and pick up on somebody else's project because you know what? Yeah. The number of times we have a project going along and, and the owner just goes, uh, pause pivot like i want to do something else i mean it happens yeah it's true it does that would be interesting <laughs> i've thought about that before where i was going to make everybody's going to come up with a couple ideas and each student vote on the best project so that there was like every student had a couple iterations and then as a class they vote on the best one and then i just shuffled all those iterations up and just assigned them to different students right so it's like this is it this is your reiteration i know it's not the one you came up with but it's the one you get now now make it a project you know well, we talked about also like, okay, everybody go and do a site evaluation. And then you like decide which one's the best site evaluation. Then everybody uses that one to do the next step. Yeah. You keep doing this like we down in the idea. Every step you go through, if you have 10 students working on it, you have 10 variations of each step, which is way more iterations than if each student did their own project from beginning to end. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, let's move on to... The idea about slow adoption of technological advances. So kind of the bullet points we have on this one are some architectural programs lag behind integrating latest digital tools and technologies, which is becoming more and more essential in daily professional practice. And as a result, students are coming out not knowing how to use any of the tools that we take for granted as like, of course, we have to know how to do this. Mm -hmm. it's, our, it's our job. Like, this is what we need to know. And I think that one's, that one's really hit or miss. And what I mean by that is there are some programs that are way out there in front of that stuff. I mean, like almost too far on the other end. Like the technology they're using is so far beyond what practice does that you learn all this stuff that then you don't get to use because, I don't know, we're not all growing our own mushrooms to make structures out of mm -hmm. there's that kind of stuff. Right. Neary Oxman level stuff. And then on the other side, there's programs where, yeah, they're not doing anything but hand drawing until they're in their fourth year of school. And this is the one to me that it's just, as I looked around and looked at programs recently, it's just all over the place, this adoption of technology. Well, it's funny. Whenever I think about technology, what students are knowing or what they're learning and what they come out being good at, it varies. It varies a lot, actually. Yeah. And we start to see it on resumes. And what kind of cracks me up is, and I've said this on whenever I review people's resume or in any of the half dozen blog posts I've written on resumes, people will put software on there that the expectation is that you just know it. I don't want to see Word on your resume because, like, the like <laughs> yeah. you should just yeah. know it. You should like that, that's true with a half dozen software now. Like, I mean, you're young, <laughs> so like this. Yeah, it was not crazy to think that somebody in 1996 wouldn't know Word or Excel or PowerPoint or fill in the blank, yeah. right? Because that stuff wasn't really out there. Now yeah, yeah. everybody knows it. You're just looking for some kind of symmetry to your software listings is why you choose it yeah so so you end up going all right well what softwares that are particular to our industry is this like 3d studio max is it sketchup is it enscape is it autocad is it revit is it well, I'm, what is it what are the ones that people use sure and what's interesting about that is the industry itself is not really aligned 
So as a student, you're kind of hedging your bet on which one do you want to learn. Yeah. Because you can say, all right, I'm all in on 3D Studio Max. And then you go to a firm that uses Enscape and you're like, dang it. Mm -hmm. Or you're like, I'm going to know Revit because it's the big monster in the room, right? And then you go to a small residential firm and they're like, we use this. Vectorworks. Yeah. Yeah. We use Vectorworks. And they're like, God darn it. Yeah. Like you just, <laughs> yeah. you don't know. And you're like, hey, I'm awesome at this other one. They're like, yeah, but we don't care. We don't use that one. I know. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. We're not paying for that software just for you. Give it the program. Yeah. So it's like they're kind of doomed to a certain extent because the industry can't figure out what they want. And so I normally, it's one of those things I might have said on the last episode that I don't really care what software students know when they get out of school because at their age, they just absorb new technology at such a ridiculous level that someone who doesn't know Revit, they're going to be great at it within a couple months. It's just kind of how it is. Yeah. You get into a real office and you don't know any of it, you'll get there way faster than you think you will. Mm, maybe so. Well, if someone falls into the, they're not all in the maybe so yes camp, I haven't met them. Yeah. I haven't met anyone who was a maybe so and they turned out to be a no. No. I mean, that's good. I'm not arguing against that, uh, but I think, I guess my stance on it is that they have to have some software in school nowadays. You can't do school without it almost. So, I mean, they have to kind of choose something and go with it. Well, okay. So, if you're giving advice over what software to learn, I mean, it's like you have to pick the biggest one because you're like, if you're playing the odds, yeah. then the odds are you're going to use Enscape or Revit or, I mean, like there's a couple of like three or four that they're the big ones. Yeah. Doesn't mean they're the best. It just means that, hey, you're playing the odds. Yeah, for sure. Which that doesn't really sound like a very considered way to form an architectural education. <laughs> no, not really. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Anthony Peachy, who has been with Construction Specialties for 12 years and holds the role of Senior Marketing Manager. His work at CS has included development of new seismic solutions for the industry, and he's passionate about the built environment embracing better solutions for the people who visit and occupy those spaces. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. It's great to be with you. Good to see you again. It's been a couple of months, I guess. Yeah. Last time was at the AIA conference, right? Yep. Yeah. Good time. Where do you call home? Where are you at tonight? I'm actually in Muncie, Pennsylvania, which is about North Central. Closest claim to fame would be Williamsport, which is the home of the Little League World Series. Nice. Let's jump right into this because you're generous to spend your time with us this evening. And I know that Andrew and I have a couple questions and I just want to kind of jump into it if that's all right with you. Absolutely. So CS is a longtime manufacturer of architectural building products. And in the coming year, you are focused on an educational concept called Mastering Movement. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So many of the listeners may not know this about CS, but we offer 10 distinct different categories of building products for the construction industry. And this whole concept of Mastering Movement really came about when we were brainstorming how to tie all of our products together. And so term resilience kept getting thrown out and we kind of asked the question, well, resilience against what? And so we kept landing on these different types of movement that a building has to withstand. And it's also what architects, designers, engineers, GCs, they're designing for, just maybe in a different set of terminology. And so we know that change is inevitable. 
buildings go through all sorts of change, whether it's once the building's built, the live loads that go into the building, the migration of people through the building, the external elements of sun, wind, water, rain, or fire even. We design against these things, these elements. We know the architects have to plan for it, structural engineers design for it. And so we as a company are committed to being experts in certain product solutions that address these types of specific movements. And so, as you mentioned, we're launching and are working through this mastering movement course of presentations where we're taking a look at the range of whether they're man-made elements or environmental elements that really impact buildings and the variety of issues that the buildings have to accommodate or deal with. Sounds good. So how is that educational component, how's that all going to roll out? Yeah, so we've developed a series of courses that will be available online. But as any CEU course, well, you can obviously request these and our product experts and specialists could do them either virtually or in person as well. And so over the course of, I think this next year, we're going to be joining you guys and we're going to just be dropping some specific nuggets of knowledge that we've learned over our time in the industry of how to address these specific movements in the built environment. And hopefully how architects can find some pretty innovative solutions and services that can help them plan for it. Yeah. So we're excited that you're going to come on the show with us a couple times over the next year or so, but it's not always going to be you. There's going to be product experts that are specific to the kind of different types of movements that are occurring in buildings right. to talk specifically about their area of mastery, right? Exactly. So I'm doing a general overview and then we'll have some product experts that can really dig deep into some specific areas of how we would recommend mastering movement, whether that's with some of the services that we offer and then obviously the solutions that we provide at the end of a, of a project. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm kind of curious about what sort of architectural solutions are you going to be exploring in the Mastering Movement Academy? So as I mentioned, we offer 10 different product lines, anything from louvers and sunshades that handle the movement of sun, air, and water. I think ventilation in a building's key but also shading that building and making sure that the spaces inside of a structure are comfortable and not glaring. The other things that we could offer are modular stair systems, and these systems really help when it comes to movement on a job site. We could talk about putting stairs up from the foundation and then doing all your landings or all your levels off of your stairs so you have instant access. Other types of movement would be actual building movement, so with expansion joint covers, and then a lot of people movements. People do a lot of damage to buildings, and <laughs> so we've got solutions to guard against that, whether that's entrance flooring systems that are keeping your first impressions great, or interior wall protection that's really holding up to the use that carts put on a building or doors that withstand all of the movement through the space itself. So We'll be exploring a variety of solutions that we've designed over the course of time. We've learned and designed and re-engineered and engineered to solve these building movement issues. And really, at the end of the day, it's all been designed to support the desire of achieving a really great aesthetic and making your building function appropriately. Wonderful. Yeah, sounds great. We're looking forward to chatting with you and your team over the next year to kind of learn more about all these individual pieces. So... Thanks for joining us today and kind of give us an overview. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be with you guys as always. It's great for you to start this off for us and we're looking forward to having it all breaking down over the next couple of months. 
Visit MasteringMovement.net for more information and to learn more about how Construction Specialties has been creating inspired solutions for a more intelligently built environment since 1948. So, again, there's plenty of things in this list. The other one that really pops out to me is the idea of the education system not recognizing the importance of practice management. It's so focused on design that it doesn't really emphasize the ability to manage projects, client relationships, learning about business, all those kinds of things that we really have to do in order to do our job. And I think the funny thing is, is there's so many students that I have that their number one goal is to you know open their own firm. They get no education on that pretty much whatsoever while they're in school. Do you have any opinions as to why that may happen since you're sitting in a room with people all the time talking about what classes we should be offering students? Well, it's funny. I had a conversation just recently about this professional practice courses and the big issue or the big problem with them in academia is that they're being taught by people who have never actually worked in a practice or ran a practice or have any practice experience. It seems problematic. And so <laughs> it's a problem. And that I think that's a lot of times why it gets avoided is because there's a divide between practice and academia, right? I mean, academics, they're in academia because they kind of don't want to do practice. They're more interested in academia than they are in practice. I should say they don't want to. but And so having people to teach classes about architectural business, you need somebody who's actually done architectural business to do it, Sure, I think. And that's not always easy, I guess. You know, even trying to drag somebody in part-time or adjunct or something to go, hey, here, teach this class. It's not an easy sell, even for the person that you can hire to do it. Well, I know at my alma mater, there's a handful of professors that are both active practitioners and professors. Yeah, yeah. So we know it happens. But one of the things that most of those folks fall into is they're, they're small project firms. Mm -hmm. They're either super high-end design residential scale projects. Residential stuff. You know, yeah. there's not a lot of... And I want to say that there was a, a woman who taught when I was in school that was like a major person with SOM, Natalie Dubois. And she came in and, man, she was scary. I never had her. I just saw her walking around, around the hallways. And you, just, like, you knew that she <laughs> yeah. was a serious person. When you go do research, you're like, wow, yeah. that woman was, she was amazing. Amazing what she did and the things that mm. she fought through to, to do and have the impact she had in our industry. And what I don't know is, and this is a shortcoming on my part. I should have looked it up before we started the recording today. Is how often is that true? We had a professional practice class and it was taught by a guy who graduated with an architecture degree, but then went to law school and he was a lawyer. And he was teaching us about professional practice, but obviously that had more of a legal bent to it. Not a, mm. how do you run a firm? What are the considerations for how you run a business at all? Yeah. And I, you know, when I had it, it was from a guy who, I mean, he was a, he was an architect and he had practiced for a while, but he was now kind of in the, or he's more in the political domain, he was like really big into doing political stuff. Dealing with the governmental regulations of architecture and all that kind of stuff. Like, mm. he was in that world. It was all sort of legal type contract stuff and all that. It wasn't a lot of business. How do you run a business or what do you need to do to do a business or any of that kind of stuff? Which, again, the flip side of that is we can't send our kids off to business school, right? Go take a business class to business school because it's not the same. Right. Our businesses don't work that way either. And so, it, I mean, it's a conundrum, right? But I think it's a, it's one of the shortfalls that tends to happen. And, it may be fine in places where there are architecture schools in a bigger urban environment, like where there's more people, 
And so it's not hard to get someone to come in who has some experience to teach class twice a week or something. But when you get into other places where it's not that way, there's not a big architectural contingent there, it can be difficult. Well, we got to make sure that we identify that, you know, we have running a business and there's the practice of business and then there's business management, which is the management of projects within the practice. Yeah. And I can tell you that I didn't really get much exposure to either of those things when I was in school. Mm -hmm. You know, my professional practice class kind of came at it from a different way. But to be honest with you, either I slept through those classes or I just didn't pay attention because whatever I learned in that class, it didn't stick. (laughs) Yeah. And it wasn't until I started studying for the ARE that that stuff showed back up on my radar screen Yeah, a little bit. And now I feel like I have a pretty good mastery. Well, mastery might be a stretch. (laughs) I have a good working knowledge of it. Yeah. But it's taken me 30 years. That's how I feel when I'm teaching this class is that I feel like most of the kids in there, they zone out because they just can't relate very well. Yeah. Because I'm talking about stuff that a lot of it's stuff that they won't even deal with in their first five years of their career. And so how do you get them interested in something that's really not in the present for them, but could be useful later? So it's a tough thing for sure. So one of the things that we had talked about that might have been good for episode one for all the people that don't listen straight through one and get through two. Yeah. It's like it's all criticisms and negative and this is terrible and it's the worst and blah, blah, blah. There's yeah. a lot of good things about it as well. Yeah. So let's get into some of those things. We got to hit the positive points for a moment. Hit the positive yeah. side Let's here. spend some time on the positive side. Yeah, yeah. So the architectural education is really good about fostering creativity. It's about design thinking, critical problem solving. It's allowing students to think outside the box to envision and create innovative projects part of that has to do it's the lunar habitat pod yeah it's the me designing a house where there was only one window in the whole house and everything else was covered in mirrors like there was (laughs) the point wasn't that it was really a house it was a commentary on something else yeah and that sort of process was very beneficial because like if you'd said hey i want you to design a house on this lot go That wouldn't be super interesting, quite honestly. And I think we actually had this as a class. It was up by Mount Pinnell in Austin. And it was the one lot that overlooked the Colorado. Super steep. There was a reason why it was the only lot that didn't have a house on it. Because it was like impossible to build on it. Mm -hmm. And I want to say of all the people that I remember, their projects, nobody did like a straight up house on that site. Like none of them looked like any house that you've ever seen. Ever seen, yeah. One guy designed a house that looked like a giant kidney bean. It was a really cool basswood model. Nice. Mine was a giant, you walked inside and everything was a mirror. Hmm. It was the tartan grid and it was at four different levels. And it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was a terrible house. Like you would never want to, literally, you'd go crazy if this was your house. But. As far as like the commentary on, it had to do with everything was about the view on these kind of lots. And so, and after a while, if you have the same view all the time, like the exact same view all the time, that view, to take a picture. It's the same thing. Now we can print out giant Vista sized prints and I can just put them on a windowless wall and you get the same thing, right? Not really. Don't come at me, folks. It's not really the same thing. But so I mean, my whole mirror house had to do with no matter where you looked. Your view reflected until it hit the one non-reflective surface, which was one corner of the house that had this one view. Hmm. So it didn't matter where you were, where you were looking, it always came back to the exact same view. That blew everybody's mind. They're like, okay, now that's some creative problem solving. 
it's a terrible house, but that's not really the objective here. So those kind of the kind of process we go through when you're solving lunar habitat stations and mirror houses is to find out something to think about that goes beyond just keeping water out of a building. That's what almost all these exercises are about. Yeah. I think that that's why I feel like the more theoretical projects and even the sort of out there, in my mind, bonkers projects that happen in academia are useful. I mean, they do serve a purpose. They are not something that should be removed from the architectural education system to make it, quote unquote, not broken. I don't think that's the case. I think they belong there and that they do serve a really strong purpose. It's just a matter of balancing that out with the other is where I, always where I end up. Yeah. The whole point of architecture school is to be creative. And I think that we do a really good job with that in general of letting people sort of run rampant with crazy ideas. Yeah. And it's actually one of the best things about the education. Yeah. And it's part of the yeah. reason why it takes so long to, to get it is because of this just wild west creative exploration that's part of the process. It's not linear, right? So you don't know how long it's going to take for you to get to start to finish because it's not a straight line. Yeah. All right. Another one of the good things we have down here is diverse educational approaches. And a lot of architecture schools have adapted to contemporary needs, offering diverse courses, interdisciplinary learning, and integrating digital technologies and sustainable design. Now there are programs that say, like, you want to specialize in hospitality, you want to specialize in medical, you want to specialize in historic preservation or sustainability, or I don't know if there's one on super talls yet, but that would be interesting. But something like that, there's a lot of ways that you can really focus your education if you want to, which I think is nice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it would be interesting. I still am going back to the whole, like, most of the time when I've seen the specializations that allow you to take advantage of a diverse educational approach. I mean, part of what makes it diverse is that you have a lot of options, but then once you pick an option, it's very specific, right? So when do those become available? Like most of the time, those are available at the graduate level. Yeah, most of the time, as far as I know. Now, they may be available in some BRH professional programs, but most of them are for sure at the graduate level graduate with some kind of certificate in X or, you know, Y or whatever, which actually leads us into the, I'm going to jump ahead, but the last item on this, the reason those things happen is because there's faculty that are doing crazy amounts of research and becoming experts in those specialized fields. That's a really good thing too. That's a really positive part of our education system is that the students then now have access to these expert faculty researchers and things like that that are way out on the front. I mean, like I mentioned, Neri Oxman earlier. She teaches class and she, you know, there's people that have, there's students that have access to her sort of way out there in the far front stuff. And that's a positive aspect of our education system that I think not everybody has. Most of the research that's being done in architecture and in the profession is actually being done in the academic world. Sure. There's not a lot of firms that are running research legs. I mean, there's a few, right? But even those are really closely tied to academia. So that's another bonus. There's the availability of having these expert researchers and, and faculty members. Well, let's talk about studio cultures on this list. And I would have debated whether or not I would include this as a positive as it exists now. It's both, right? I think. Well, if it was a snapshot of my time in school, studio culture 100% would be on the list. Yeah. And it really had to do with everybody who worked, you worked at your desk in the architecture building. Nobody worked in their apartment. Nobody yeah. went home and did that. Mm -hmm. You had everybody up there working all the time doing whatever they're doing. 
then it allowed you to learn how to engage and communicate and critique and take comments and ask questions on a peer-to-peer level that I'm not so sure happens now the way current systems were. This is a wide sweeping statement. I know it's not categorically true. It seems like it's more true than not. So I'm going to lean into that aspect of it. Okay. People are taking classes in the classroom, but when the classes are done, they unplug their laptops and they go do whatever they're going to do somewhere else. I'm not sure if someone's doing all-nighters. I don't know if they're doing them at a desk in a building on campus anymore. I don't know how much of that goes on. I know it goes on to a certain extent, and I don't know if it's limited to the last push before you're pinning up something or you're doing printing or you're model building and you don't actually have stuff that you can cut on at your apartment. So that's why you build models and stuff up at school. But at one point, it was 100% studio culture. And it was wildly different than what I experience when I go to schools now. Not bad. It's not bad now. It's just different. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree. It's um, But it's still positive. It's still on the plus side of the, I wish it was more, mm-hmm. but it's still wholly unique to anybody I know studying anything right now, it seems like. Yeah. I think, though, part of it is it's not just the outside of class studio culture, though. It's the in-class studio culture also that's important, which to me, I think, is the positive because there's not a lot of courses where the interactions and the way that we run studios and that kind of educational environment even exists. Even if they are packing up as soon as studio's over and going home, but that environment of learning and teaching that way and doing and discussing and critiquing and talking about things and doing desk crits and talking about individuals' work or two or three people's work on a daily basis in this method of project progress that doesn't happen in very many other instances in higher education. This is the one of the things that we currently we are battling with is because of the way that studio works, we can't have a class with 40 students in it. That's not a studio anymore. Yeah. The studios by nature have got to be small because there's a lot of personal interaction with faculty that doesn't happen in any other sort of educational environment. And so to me, that's a positive part of the studio culture and not necessarily the after-hour stuff. And the after-hour stuff, yeah, I mean, it kind of comes and goes, and it depends. I think if I made models happen in every one of my studios, the studio culture would be back to like what it was when we were in school. It's because nobody really makes people do models anymore. And so, yeah, I can just unplug my laptop and leave and go do whatever. But I think if I was to say, we're doing models, we're doing models, we're doing models, you could force that culture back into existence. But for some reason, I think it's weird to me that models have lost educational value somehow in some way, which drives me bananas, but that's a whole other podcast too. It's just the idea that of studio as an educational model is what's really unique. You might get it in art school too, but really in architecture. Okay. So let's look at another one that we have on this list. And we don't have to dive into this one deep, but I think it warrants a little bit of mention. It had to do with the historical and theoretical foundations that in general, our education Let's see if I can articulate this well. So there's all the standardized classes that everybody who goes to college has to take. Everyone has to take like a couple years of English. Everybody has to take a couple years of history and government, all that kind of good stuff. Most of the generic everybody's got to take classes focus more on the, the liberal arts side of coursework. And so when you think about architecture as a profession and architecture as an education, We have a lot of math, a lot of science, a lot of art, a lot of history. I mean, like, I don't know of another degree path, and I used to make this argument with my wife all the time, 
is that we're as soup to nuts as you can get on an education in terms of all the different types of coursework that are required to complete our degree. I think that's part of the reason why almost all architecture degrees have way more hours than a typical liberal arts or business. If I look up a business degree, it'll be 120 hours. And that's just telling you that's four years to 15 hours a semester. Boom, done. That is not normally the case with architecture programs. And a lot of them make assumptions of summer coursework or you're going to test out of some stuff just to be able to get it done in four years. That's a statement on a lot of different things about the type of breadth that they want to cover. But it's also just based on our conversations today. There's a lot that needs to be covered. Yeah. I don't know what you'd get rid of and replace with all the stuff we're saying that you should be doing. It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, our undergraduate degree is 120 hours, but it's not necessarily technically an architecture degree. I think it is true that we cover a broad spectrum of knowledge in our education as architects. In the breadth of our coursework, we might end up in every building on campus at least for one semester. It's that kind of thing. Well, I'd like to know who else took a drawing class with live nude models and then when it ended went to their physics class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. doesn't happen to a lot of people. So you come out with a pretty well-rounded foundation of a higher level teaching yeah. in your head. So, yeah. Okay. Let's go on to the third big topic we have, which is the impact of public perception. And this one is kind of interesting because there's a lot to it, but it really has to do with, I'm just going to say, People understanding who we are, what we do, and the value of what we tackle is part of doing our job. Mm -hmm. And I don't know a good way to say it succinctly. I'm probably the worst person to be in this position to set this up because I'm known for a lot of things, but being succinct is not normally one of them. But it just has to do with being able to articulate who we are and what we do and why there's value in it. And so that shows up in a lot of different ways. So let's just start with design philosophies. The note that we have on this is differences in design philosophies between academia and the profession may result in a lack of clarity or consistency in the architectural styles and approaches that architects are trained in and subsequently produce. This can lead to confusion or dissatisfaction among the public who may or may not fully understand or appreciate the design choices being made by those architects. And you see this manifest itself in a thousand different ways on any given day. thousand different ways, yeah, all the time. Yeah, you can sit there and look at work on a residential scale and look at really modern projects and people think it's garbage. And if it doesn't have like, if it's not Georgian or if it doesn't have like ionic columns out in front or, yeah, I mean, there's a difference between what you like and the value that something else or if it's done well brings to the, it's the stone soup conversation. Mm -hmm. Everything brings a little something and the whole thing ends up being better with the variety as opposed to just everything being the same. Yeah. But that's a very, high-minded way to look at how any work is done because if I look at something like Seaside in Florida, which is like everybody loves Seaside. Mm. And you know what? All those houses, while there's a lot of creativity going on, it's prescriptive. There are, Mm -hmm. you have to use one of these six fence types. You you need to use this color palette. You need to, like you will have this siding pattern. I mean, it it tells you what it is you've got to do and there's a ton of rules you have to follow. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it creates this I don't know, this kind of aesthetic utopia that resonates with, in a positive way with a lot of people. Yeah. And if all of a sudden I drop some giant Corten square box with glass wall-to-wall floor to ceiling in one spot, people would lose their mind. Yeah, yeah. Over that. They're like, you ruined it. 
Yeah. There's some comfort in the homogeneity. I mean, I hate to say that. That's not really true, but there's a lot of things in this list. You know, I don't know if we've got time to run into all of them, but to me, the easy part of this is that, again, it is so diverse that it doesn't appeal to everybody. But also, I think that sometimes, for me, the public perception of stuff is the things that get pushed out and that we as architects mostly celebrate is so, I don't want to say not the norm, but not the norm for the average person or the average public and the way that we talk about it and the way that we do it. In my mind, in reality, academia is a whole other level of that. Oh, for sure. You look at some stuff they're kicking out at Yale and Columbia or Harvard or whatever. If you were to show some of that stuff to the average layperson, they would not see it as architecture in any way, shape, or form. Right. They would be like, what? Is this? what? this makes no sense. And I think that's sometimes how it gets to be a problem or how the academic world and its divergence a little bit, I guess, from practice even has a, a larger impact on public perception. And so, I mean, I think that has a big impact. Well, that accessibility of the general public to what we do. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. I feel like the more diagrammatic a project is, the more likely it is to win a design award, which is determined by other architects. Yeah. Like if you do a residential project and it's got closets in it, you're not getting an award. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's too practical. Yeah, that's true, right? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, you're like, if there's- Closets, what? No, you're out. You got closets? What? <laughs> Done. You're out. That's funny. Yeah. So there's this idea of that, like, how do you walk that line between what the general public wants versus are you trying to push some thinking? forward because you're thinking at a scale that goes beyond just a one-off. Like La Corbusier came up with some of the worst, worst city planning ever when he decided that he was going to like, Ooh, we're going to design a city up and we're going to have a section where like you work in this part and you live in this yeah. part and you like, and it was terrible. Yeah. And the idea that the machine is for living. And it's like, this was like, fundamentally, this is how people should be living their lives. And it didn't work. And it was terrible. Yeah. But he wasn't trying to solve it one thing at a time, he's like, he's like, I'm going to roll out a lot of this. There's a certain kind of density you think has to be reached for some of these conceptual ideas to, to actually come to fruition. But man, when they miss, it's bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny. I feel like, yeah, there's nothing worse than a highly publicized bad project that just shoots us in the foot or the knee or, you know, even further up every time that happens. I'm thinking about that thing that just happened recently. I remember there was that dorm in California. There was no windows in the whole thing. And it was like this giant up front. It's like, oh, man, that's a knock against us now as architects. Oh, yeah. What, what are they trying to do to us here? Yeah. So another perfect example is the vessel that's in New York. I don't remember how much that one cost, but it was a lot. And it was basically a, a public structure for you to go up and walk and move through and exist within. It like didn't have a purpose. I mean, I'm reducing it down to the lowest common denominator, but people started doing things that weren't intended to be done. Yeah. And they shut it down. Yeah. It's a bad look. That's a painful oopsie. Yeah. Okay. So let's also look at the idea of cost and value. Public projects or developments experience budget overruns or delays due to a lack of, I don't know, practical skills or it can lead to negative public perceptions of architects as cost ineffective professionals. This is true on almost every type of building that the general public is aware of. I can guarantee you it, it's taking too long and it's over budget. Yeah. Not just some building down the street, not some office building around the corner. I'm not saying it doesn't happen to those. I'm saying the ones that like that touches the lives of the most people, mm -hmm. stadiums, museums, all those, they're all, all of them over budget. Yeah. All of them are late. 
all of them are like, it, there's always huge problems associated with them because most of those projects are extremely forward thinking, out of the box. This has never been done. Bleeding edge technology incorporation, new techniques of construction, all of it. Those are those projects that those things tend to take on. They never come off without a hitch, but we still need them to happen. Yeah. Because they, they advance everything else along. Yeah, for sure. But the perception is that we did it. Architects did that. <laughs> yeah. I think it ends up being this idea or this public notion that kind of high design stuff or I don't know how else to say it, but like high design things are always bad. They always are out of budget. They never do the things that they're supposed to do because like you said, those are the things that end up reaching the most number of people. The largest percentage of the public uh, are always the wrong things, the bad things. Because most of the time, if it's something good, even if it's at the same scale, it doesn't quite have the same traction. It doesn't get out in the general public. Again, there's a lot of things about the education system that can lead to some of this stuff, but that's one I don't know how we address, in all honesty. I don't know how you can start to say, well, we need to change the education so that the public has more value for what we do. I don't know that that's really the truth or, or the fact or the possibility, but it still happens. I can think of sometimes we do some public outreach as architects and stuff and go into these work groups for things, and then we start coming up with these crazy ideas. We do design charrettes for the community. And now I've got this community center that's supposed to look like a kidney bean. Or the public is like, why? Well, I don't understand that. Why are you doing that? What is that? You know, what's the point of that? We just want a place to play basketball and go swimming. Why you got to do it this crazy way? And well, there's a lot of those programs that exist out there. The Rural Studio did that. Yeah. There's lots of programs that say, all right, we're going to involve the community and we're going to teach these students how to do these projects in a way that makes a difference and makes an impact in the community. I mean, it happens and maybe there should be an emphasis and not be so singular a specific program. You know, like the people I know that do those programs, you pay to go in to do it. It's not like, oh, here's my semester of community engagement work. Yeah. Which, you know, that whole citizen architect idea. I don't think I've ever met an architect who knew about that program or what they were trying to do that didn't go. That's awesome. Yeah. And I would bet every single one of those architects would say, you know what? Every school should spend one semester having their students do something like this. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a whole different set of curriculum. And like, what do you, again, what are you giving up in order to get that in? Yeah. And that's part of the problem on this. Yeah, it's tough. So since we've been at this for a while, and I came up with a hypothetical maybe 30 minutes before we started the call, which Andrew has not heard yet. Yep. I'm not even sure it's that good. Because let's be honest, I'm on meds right now. <laughs> that could mean it's really good then, actually, quite honestly. <laughs> I mean, maybe. That's where, it's where we got the yeah. the hot dog finger came from the same kind of... Uh, yeah, right. So one of the things I thought would be important is to sum up this two-part episode with, okay, so there's things about the architecture education process that we think could be better. And there's things we think are great, and there's things that we think are not great. And I feel like we should kind of put a little bit of a bow on it. And when I try to think of, so it's just not me complaining for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. The things that I think about that I think would be of value is to come up with a curriculum where everybody starts at the same level and you start with these foundational classes, the history and the theory and the art and the, and the design, the creativity. You like really lean into those things for a certain amount of time. I don't know what that number is. I don't know if it's a year or if it's three semesters. But then you start to wean them down and you start to pick some kind of core paths that the students have some kind of ownership of choosing which direction they want to go. 
so that if you decide that you're not a designer or you don't want to be a design, but you still want to be in the profession, right now, I'm not sure what path do those people have other than just like, well, just stick through it until you get into the real world. And then you can end up being a project architect and it's okay that design is not your first love. So I sit there and I think there's got to be some core foundational type of projects. And then as you start to get distance from those classes, that you have the option to choose what sort of project architect, project management, project design kind of path that you want to go. And it actually more aligns to how things work in a typical architectural office. I think there's a solution that lies somewhere in there. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd never thought about it quite that way. It's almost like you could have a a second major or a degree in actually like architectural management or professional service management. It's not quite architecture because in that scenario that you're talking about where there are those students and they're not design focused, but again, doesn't mean they wouldn't be great in the profession. It wouldn't do certain things well. But to me, the issue that happens is when they're not great designers, they don't do great in studio, they get bad grades, and then they end up not being perceived as being good students because the emphasis is so much on design. Again, like we've talked about, that's such a small part of what we actually do. Right. And so I think that's an interesting idea to think about. The only caveat to that, I think, is after a year and a half of school or three semesters, I don't know that you'd have enough knowledge about it to even make that decision. Because we've talked about that in some of the stuff that we're trying to do in our program about, well, after two years, they should be able to decide, do I want to go do this path, this path, or this path? I'm going to go to get a B-Arch. I'm going to go and just finish two years because I'm going to do something else with this degree, or I'm going to do interiors now, or I'm going to go into fabrication. How do we set that up? But the challenge is how do you get them to even understand the consequences of that decision in a mere two years, or show them what all those pathways mean in a mere two years, or you know, give them enough information to be able to make a valid choice in those two years while you're still trying to teach them all those foundational things as well. It just becomes a really challenging And not that it's not doable and that it couldn't happen, but... Well, right now they got no choice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, right now there's no choice. That's true. So I agree. That's the hard thing is how do you know? How would somebody at that age... I mean, let's be honest. If you're... One of the things we didn't get into with architecture school being broken is the 4-2 versus the 5 versus... I mean, hey, can schools... Can y'all just figure that (laughs) crap out? That's so irritating. Yeah. And the number of people I've met that didn't realize that they were getting an unlicensable degree degree yeah when they signed up not knowing what do you mean i can't get licensed i'm graduating from college with my degree and i can't get like i go that's garbage i can't tell you how much when i hear Me that too. it breaks my heart i didn't know it when i started school i mean i found out i don't know two or three years in that that was the case i was like well, okay guess that's that <laughs> yeah yeah look i'm not trying to say i knew either i just happened to go to a school yeah. it was a five-year degree so it didn't matter. Where it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's somewhere in this conversation, which we did not touch on, is that we got to figure out how to get people through this system faster than what we're currently doing. And we need to get on the same page between like, if you do like a 4-2, then we're all doing 4 twos, and it's not really a 4-2. It's four years of foundational and it's two years of specialized. You do four years of this and then you get to choose if you're going to be a project architect you want to go along this project management or if you want to go along this project designer route, like whatever it's going to be, to try to figure some of this stuff out better because what's happening now is we're not giving people choices. We're just saying, oh, we've got your roadmap figured out. I still remember getting my year one semester, fall, year one spring semester. Like here's all the classes you're taking for all five years. 
and they gave me just a couple of slots for like, oh, you can fill something in here. It has to meet this requirement, but yeah, you can pick here. So I had like five classes out of five years of school mm -hmm. that I got to fill in. And I feel like there should be a point at where you can go, okay, let's reassess where we're at without me having to exit the program altogether. Mm -hmm. My option shouldn't be I'm all in or all right, well, I'm out. And I feel like that's kind of the system that we've set up right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to prolong this, but you got my brain thinking now about some stuff to maybe make an options possible. In other words, so I go through the same program, but let's say in year four or my whole year five, I know I'm not going to be designer. I opt out and I go take business classes instead of studio, but I take six hours of business classes instead of six hours of studio or something that we allow that to be because we know that that's what they want to do. But that would take some work, but that's an interesting perspective, I think, to put to it. Well, you give them like the certificate. You want to like focus on sustainability. You want to focus on business management. You want to focus on project architecture, whatever it may be. Yeah. You say, I'm going to leave you this one year and you're going to end up getting like a certification, an additional whatever, because you're going to focus on just this one kind of whatever you're interested in. Hmm. Anyway. Okay. So there you go. Let's move into, I'm going to do a hypothetical today. Hmm. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's been a long time. And I'm not entirely sure how I can prove this one up. If you have this one answer, if you don't play along, this is going to be a very short hypothetical <laughs> question. So here it is. You ready? You're expecting me to have a specific answer for this whole thing to work? Man, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. No, no, no. I'm telling you. But uh, you'll see. Okay. All right. So the other thing is, is this one requires some setup. And I know you and all these other people are going to try to loophole their way to the prize on this. And so I'm not changing the rules. I'm clarifying the points. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to read the question. I have like five ground rules just off the top of my head. Okay. They're not really off the top of my head. I came up with them before the show started, but they were the, off the top of my head when I wrote them down. So here it is. You're on a deserted island with a single spider monkey. We're already winning. A deserted island and a monkey. Yeah. You have one year to catch this monkey. And if you are successful, you will receive a cash prize of $1 million. So it's one year of your life or less, depending on how fast you can catch this spider monkey. Ground rules. You have to put up $50,000 of your own money to get the opportunity to win the $1 million. Number two, the spider monkey is wise to what's happening and it does not want you to catch it. <laughs> you understand that? Okay. It doesn't want to be caught. I'm assuming most, most monkeys don't, but all right. Yeah. Three, you have to catch this monkey with your bare hands. <laughs> <laughs> all right? Uh-huh. There's no traps allowed. You can't befriend this monkey. Like, you can't teach it sign language and make a deal. Like, if you let me catch you, I'm going to set you up in bananas for life. And the monkey will not attack you. You're in no physical jeopardy. Do you take that challenge to catch a spider monkey with your bare hands in a period of one year? And it can be a small deserted island. It doesn't have to be a big one. It can be a small one. So the question really is, is it's a yes or no question about whether or not I'm willing to do this. But it's based on whether or not you think you can do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's a weird question. I'm sitting here trying to think about ways that I would be able to catch it, first and foremost, before I even answer. But you ruled out so many ways. I mean, like, I, I got to catch it with my bare hands. Yes. And I can't trap it. Yes. 
And I guess it depends. You know, you say a couple of things about it doesn't have to be a big island. Because I'm like, if it was a big enough island, I could spend a whole year and never see it. Yeah, that's not the problem. Like, this monkey's taunting you, really. Uh, like, you're always aware where that little spider monkey is. Okay. Um, I mean, I have a year, that's it. Is that the thing? Mm-hmm. Once a year's over, I'm back to reality, and I'm yeah. $50,000 out if I, don't, if I don't catch it. That's right. That's right. You could just see it as, like, it's a one-year vacation. You and spider monkey. <laughs> is there a bar? Uh... I mean, oh. well, actually, that's my other question. So, what what is my living situation like? Am I just sleeping on the beach in a tent for a year, spending my free time trying to catch a spider monkey, also trying not to starve? We'll say Swiss Family Robinson rules. So, you're not sleeping in, in the dirt, in the sand, but you just know like air conditioning. You don't have refrigeration. Um, Now, you could, in theory, you could pile up a bunch of fruit and just hope that the monkey gets... Used to being close. Well, that was going to be my thing, is to try to catch them somehow. With fruit. With food. <laughs> right? To try to, like, lay out some food. Well, that's what I was going to do, is lay out a food and catch them in a trap. But then I just had to try the to traps. catch them with my hands. Um, yes. And see, I didn't make you have to, like, pin him, right? It's like, you grab him. Ugh. You're going to be grabbing the tail. It's the only shot you got. Right? I don't know. Like, maybe you bury yourself in the sand and pile the fruit up on you. And then the monkey comes across on the sand, and then, like, you feel it, and then you just kind of go, I just grab him. Yes. Catch him like that. That's a possibility. That would be about all I got. I don't think I'm chasing it or anything, trying to catch it. My next question is, are they trees? Yeah, the spider monkeys, that's their main, that's where they hang. No, I know, but that's why I'm asking. I'm like, no, this sounds sounds like a lose-lose in reality. If I was a younger person, I might take this bet. But now that I'm a little bit older, I don't think I could do it. I I don't think I would do it. I think it's a no. You think no? I just don't think, yeah, I don't know. Well, I know that they can cover 30 feet in a single swing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like they can. I know, yeah, yeah, no. You're not chasing, you're, there's there's no, no, there's no chance of you getting in the trees and getting this thing. You just presented the probably the best possible <laughs> option for catching a monkey. Yes, I know. Yeah, like piling a bunch of fruit, burying myself in the sand with a straw coming out of my mouth. Pile out a bunch of fruit on my chest. Bury yourself in the fruit. But see, it's going to take time for you to get all the fruit, you know. Well, and, and wait, and wait, and wait, and wait till this monkey shows up. And then hopefully he doesn't just swing by and grab the fruit while he's on his way 30 feet away. And then it's off enough. What if you finally got the spider monkey, came to the fruit pile, and you're covered, you're buried in the fruit. You can't see it, right? Because you're buried. You just feel it's like on your chest. and you come out of the sand and you reach for it it slips through your fingers there's no chance that monkey's going back to that fruit pile you got one shot yeah you only got one shot one at, shot at yeah, that sure. I know. okay so the short version is yeah there's no chance no one can catch a spider monkey not their bare hands i don't think no i mean well actually I, i'm gonna go i'm gonna go dark does it have to be alive when i catch it well, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to get it to eat something poisonous? No, I'm going to throw a spear at it. I'm going to make a spear. <laughs> I'm going to throw a spear at it. Stab it. Uh, No, you can't do that. I mean, I didn't interpret it that way, but I was just going to say if we're, if we're going yeah. there. Yeah, well, I did, I did say you had to catch it with your bare hands. So you can't use like a arrow or something and get it. I did have a note on here that I said, what if I allowed you to make friends with this monkey, but you'd have to. You have to kill it after you catch it. 
I was like, that's oh, too bad. It's too dark. That's a little rough. And I like I like monkeys. Yeah. I was like, there's no chance. There's no chance. For a million dollars, would I do it? No, I don't think I could. I don't think I would either. I mean, yeah. My buddy. I'm on an island with my buddy for a year, and I'm like, all right, it's a million dollars, bro. And then that's the end of it? No. Later. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Uh-uh. So we're going to say, I thought normally when we have feats of strength and coordination, you usually feel pretty good about yourself. I do. But this is speed and agility. <laughs> and at this point in my life, I'm kind of low. I don't have confidence in that area. If I had to fight a gorilla, it might be different. But <laughs> catching a spider monkey, I'm like, Ooh, that's I don't see that happening right now. I was going to say, like, could you pin a chimpanzee? Now, that one I would try. But yeah, I know. No, I, we'd have to put the rules that it's not going to rip your face off. Oh, yeah. No, I know. Sure. Like, I'm pretty sure it could still put a, an arm off of you, though, is the thing. I don't think you could, I don't think you could pin them. I don't think you could pin a chimpanzee. Mm. Maybe a, ba- a baby one. I don't know. Depends. The leader. Could you pin the leader? <laughs> and the leader is the leader because it's the toughest yeah, one. Yeah, no, I know. That's how that structure works. Yeah, exactly. No, anybody v monkey, monkey wins. I don't think you could pin. I don't think you could pin a spider monkey. You you couldn't catch it. Well, yeah. If you caught it, you could pin it probably. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, they're not they're they're only like two feet tall. I know they're not that big. Yeah, but they're like all they're long and skinny and like in my mind they'd be slippery. Right? Like you couldn't be able to do it. They just keep sliding out from around you. It'd be like a, a wrestling match where they're like spinning around. What if it slapped you? <laughs> Right, you're trying to get it and just like swack. Yeah, I don't think that would. Well, it might hurt. I don't know. I bet. Oh, what is, oh anyway. Okay, so we're going to say, <laughs> that's like I said. All right, so the answer is no. no. Any Bob Andrew V monkey, it's a no. You know, I mean, it, it, even if it wasn't, at first I was like, well, I don't want to put it in the money. But even if I had to put it in the money, I just don't think there's a possibility of me catching this monkey. I, I just I just don't see it. Yeah, that's why I was like, if Andrew goes, no. <laughs> I was like, I got to be short because- I firmly believe that you would never be able to catch that monkey. I don't mean you. I mean me. I don't think anybody could. Yeah, a person. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that. I don't think so either. I don't think so either. That seems like too difficult of a challenge. Now, had it been to trap it, then I might have been in. But catch it with my bare. You got to build your own trap. Yeah, and that's fine. I could do all that. But catch it with my bare hands, that, that was what. Nope, I'm out. I think building a trap to catch a spider monkey would also be difficult. Yeah, but. It'd have to be some kind of webbing, right? It'd have to be a net. I'd have a year to figure it out, and I think I could do it. It'd have to be a net, right? It'd have to be somewhere. Yeah. It went into the pile of fruit, and then you cut a cord, and In the, the net, net came yep, up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'd be I'd be home in like two weeks. <laughs> it would only take me, as long as it took me to make a net and get the fruit, done. And wait for the monkey to show up. Well, the monkey's taunting me the whole time, remember? We're just lucky that monkeys don't realize what nets are. <laughs> Okay, look, that's a high note. Let's leave, let's call this one a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 138, Is Architecture School Broken? Part 2. Special thanks to Construction Specialties. They are so focused on the importance of helping the architects achieve their creative vision that they have created a CEU Academy with multiple courses concerning facade design. These courses are each worth one AIA learning unit or one IDCEC HSW. Visit masteringmovement.net to take this and other courses. We'd also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, 
So hit that subscribe button and you'll get notified every two weeks when we publish a marvelous new episode. And while you're there, please take a few more seconds to leave us a five-star Monkeys Are Hard to Catch rating. <laughs> to get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this studious episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.